The Gospel this Sunday addresses the sensitive topic of divorce. It does it by introducing to us two married couples. The first couple is Adam and Eve. We meet them in the reading from Genesis and again in the Gospel where the Lord Jesus quotes directly from the same passage, Genesis 2, 18-24. It is often said that Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage He didn't have to hear her talk about all the men she could have married, and Eve didn't have to hear him talk about how well his mother cooked. We'll meet the second couple in a few minutes. They will be an example of what every married couple knows from their own experience, that the ideal marriage only exists in bridal magazines just like the ideal monastery exists only in glossy vocation brochures. Groucho Marx said that marriage is the chief cause of divorce. When the Pharisees ask Christ about divorce, they're not interested in what causes it. Marx signals that they wanted to test Jesus. This is a hint that there's something else going on in the passage than an argument about the correct legal interpretation of Torah. What they're looking for is a way to catch Jesus in politically incorrect speech. They were aware, even if we are not, that the other couple behind the story, Herod Antipas and and his wife Herodias, linger large. They were a famous couple, or really the word should be infamous, because of their irregular marriage. Herod fell in love with Herodias the moment he met her. He was visiting his brother Philip. So he divorced his first wife, an Arabian princess, and promptly married Herodias. The problem was that Herodias was Philip's wife, his brother. This meant that she became Herod's wife and his sister-in-law all at the same time. But wait, it gets even better. There was another complication. To discover that, all you need to do is look at the similarity of their names. Herod, Herodias, get it? She was also his niece. But this was typical behavior of the Herod clan. They could have had their own soap opera if TV were available in the first century. As Eleanor of Aquitaine says to Henry II in The Lion in Winter, what family doesn't have its ups and downs? According to Jewish law, Mr. and Mrs. Herod's marriage was not only adulterous, it was incestuous. First century Jews felt the same way about incest that 21st century Americans do but they used different categories to describe it. They said it was behavior worthy of only a pagan. Trouble was, who was going to point this out to Israel's most famous and dangerous dysfunctional family? John the Baptist tried it six chapters earlier in Mark and and was beheaded for his trouble. So the Pharisees' question about divorce has a sharp political edge which betrays darker motives. It's an early example of the politics of personal destruction. But theirs is not the only agenda operating in the passage. The other one belongs to St. Mark. 
And we can retrieve that agenda by asking a simple question of all the things that Jesus said and did, and there must have been many, many more that Mark does not record, but of all those things, why did Mark preserve this incident in his gospel? The answer has to do with what we have been listening to over the past four weeks. Mark has been giving us a picture of the Lord Jesus slowly making his way from Galilee to Jerusalem and to certain death. This is not just the story of Jesus, though. It is also the story of the true nature of discipleship. The twelve who are traveling with the Lord, even though they may not realize what lies in store for Christ at the end of the journey, are at least doing what disciples are supposed to be doing, keeping close to Jesus and following in his footsteps. Now, the Passion account, as we all know, only comes at the end of the Gospel narratives. This ought not to obscure the fact that theologically they really lie at the center of Christian faith. There's no such thing as friendship with the crucified one without sharing in this most formative of experiences because, as Jesus has already told us, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. We know what the cross looks like for Jesus Christ. We have no idea what form it will assume in our own lives. What we do know is that none of us will be crucified for attending Mass this Sunday morning. This means that there is always a danger that the cross will stay on the level of pure theory. It's a danger because it turns Christian faith into a spectator sport where we watch Christ carry his cross but refuse to get involved by embracing our own. Mark knows that this is a problem too. Meanwhile, the debate comes to an end and the Pharisees disappear from the scene, but not the story. The disciples who have been listening ask the Lord to explain what exactly has been going on. He tells them <clears throat> that the most intimate of human experiences, the union between a woman and a man, also leads to the cross because it demands the giving of oneself in love and self-denial within the bonds of the union of marriage. The concession for divorce, he says, that allowed Moses, uh, Moses allowed in Deuteronomy was made to human selfishness but it is diametrically opposed to God's design for men and women from the beginning. The beginning is Genesis. Jesus' teaching is so clearly anti-divorce that some have wondered if he realized how hard it would be in a culture like ours to stay with one partner 10, 20, 30, or 50 years or more. You know as well as I do that there are few supports for this kind of commitment in a consumer society where today's novelties become tomorrow's rejects. Increasingly, we lack the vocabulary even to describe commitment because our moral choices are based on feelings rather than on reason and truth. When he was Secretary of Education, William Bennett, the author of The Book of Virtues, attended the wedding of a junior colleague. The couple, in their marriage vows, promised to remain together, quote, as long as love shall last, close quote. For a wedding gift, Bennett gave the newlyweds a case of paper plates. The fact 
that nearly every one out of every two marriages ends in divorce is not a judgment on the couple, but on us. We Catholics have helped shape the culture that has lost its moral compass. The culture that has made fidelity <clears throat> difficult. <clears throat> as hard as the gospel may be, we have no choice but to preach it faithfully. But neither may we judge our brothers and sisters who are divorced and remarried and place an added burden of guilt and shame on their shoulders. Because this too is faithfulness to the gospel. <clears throat> 